So I'll be presenting about John Knox. This is like the only image I'm going to have of, of him. I didn't. I was going to print off some pictures. There's some good ones of him debating with Mary Queen of Scots and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I'll start off with the biography section. <clears throat> Woe to you when all speak. Uh, sorry. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Luke six twenty six. What a timely statement by our Lord. It is so evident that we witness this principle today, don't we? Look at Joel Osteen or Kenneth Copeland. These men literally get rich preaching exactly what everyone wants to hear. Many speak well of these men today. So what would Christ have to say? Unlike these men today, John Knox is almost never spoken of well in a positive light. Even those who consider themselves conservative Christians would say Knox was a brute or a tyrant. All of this talk reminded Douglas Wilson of that verse in Luke that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago. Very often it is those who are faithful to God who are maligned. And this is the story of one of such men. John Knox was born in Haddington, Scotland during the early 16th century in a significant time of turbulence. Many conflicts on every front were present, most of which has its root in the theological errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Historians are uncertain about the date of Knox's birth. What we do know is that it was either 1514 or 1515 A.D. He was born into an era of widespread corruption and evil in the church. There's also much, <clears throat> there was so much, in fact, there was constant mockery of the clergy. There, they actually tried to pass laws to prohibit mocking the clergy at this time. So, like, you weren't allowed to criticize the Catholic Church to the point where even making a joke about it would be considered an offense that they could take. And at this time, the legal system was essentially the same as the Catholic Church in Europe. So, if your country was a Catholic country, that meant that the laws always reflected Catholic mass or things like that. So there wouldn't be this idea that you could just have tolerance, like, oh, you just believe something different from me. Like, no, they actually would put you in jail if you didn't practice Mass and things like that. Um, yeah, they actually called it lampooning. They prohibited lampooning. But it was no use. It would be like someone today making it illegal to mock televangelists. Like, um, of course, that wouldn't work because people would just obviously see the errors and point it out. Um, but most of uh, Knox's early life we don't really know a lot about it um, historians try to guess and they, they assume he was educated and they know that he was educated somewhere in Scotland so the assumption is that uh, he, he studied in um, St. Andrews as a young man he definitely had some sort of liberal education so he, he knew his stuff, like he, he knew languages, he knew things like that. But we don't really know a lot about it, just because there's not a lot of documentation. But regardless of his early life, Knox was gripped by the truths of God's word in many ways. He came to reject the medieval doctrines of the Catholic Church that plagued Scotland for so long. Um, did not help that Scotland was full of corruption in the churches. There were several bishops in the region who put men to death for small offenses. One of the influential men who was condemned by Rome was a name a man named George Wishart. Mm. Wishart was preaching his sermons with the Greek New Testament, which of course was way too much for the clergy at the time. Only in Latin, they would exclaim. After an attempt on Wishart's life by a Catholic priest, 
He would start bringing a bodyguard with him wherever he went. Who did that responsibility fall to? None other than John Knox. He would carry a two-handed broadsword to protect the minister. Wishart was not the only one who was teaching contrary to the demands of Rome. There were many movements throughout Europe at this time, and they were moving more and more towards Protestantism. One major event that occurred was the assassination of the regional cardinal of St. Andrew's Castle. This was a strong response to the killing of George Wishart at the stake by the Roman Catholic authorities. These men saw themselves as avengers, not like the Marvel comics, but avengers of God's justice. They believed it was God's judgment for this to happen to this priest. Tensions are, as you can tell, very high. This forced the Protestants to bar themselves inside the castle walls to be safe from the authorities that knew were coming. The situation unto, this is the situation unto which John Knox was first called into ministry. John Ruff charged Knox at the end of his sermon that it was Knox's duty to use his gift of preaching in the service of God. So while the enemy was closing in on them, Knox gave his, uh, his testimony and he could, barely, he could barely speak after this happened. He was quivering that he was even asked to preach. And so this, um, this call was very burdensome on his life because he didn't think that that would be something he could do. But everyone else saw what he couldn't see himself. Um, but Knox showed that he was a formidable debater early on. He, once he stepped into the role, um, he wasn't timid. He got right to the heart of the issue every time. He, he never minced words. He just went straight and punched straight. It was, it was um, sort of akin to Scotland in general. Uh, people in Scotland are known for being very blunt or being very, um, not, not always being eloquent, but being able to speak the truth even if it cost them their life. Um, but he argued vehemently that the Roman Catholic Church in his day was more corrupt than the Pharisees at the time of Christ. This was in the context of a debate with Dean John Anand at St. Andrews, where Knox humiliated Anand and ruined his reputation. All this passion and zeal against Catholicism eventually caught up to them, though. The French Navy was set on destroying this band of rebels. Once they showed up to defend their theological allies... The French assaulted the castle and overwhelmed this band of Protestants that had later been called the Castilians, who were defending the castle. The result of this major blunder is that these men were enslaved and forced to row medieval galleys for the Roman Catholic Frenchmen. Knox was consigned with these men. He may have truly disagreed with their methods for bringing reform. Nevertheless, he had to suffer with them. These French military men mocked and jeered at Knox and others. The conditions of these galleys were compared by C.S. Lewis to be like concentration camps. Mm. It was so bad that Knox actually wrote about it being like the Jewish exile in Babylon and that he was in torment the whole time. It was 19 months that Knox would spend in the bottom of that wretched ship. But during that time, he was strengthened greatly in soul. His zeal was stirred within him, and on one occasion... Knox saw the castle of St. Andrews from the ship, and he vowed that he would preach again in that castle before he died. After the release of Knox from the galley, he spent four years in England, where he would witness the Reformation in new life. Although King Henry broke off from Rome, he only did so for a divorce, not for godly convictions. In turn, the actual religious practices of the Church of England, or the Anglican Church, were not all that different from the Roman Catholics. This was changing slowly. The tide moved in the direction of the reform. 
and uh, more Reformation than just simply Anglican. Knox was a man of deep convictions, and one of those convictions was about the idolatry of false worship of the Mass. Through the four years, Knox heavily criticized the Catholic Church and the false worship of bowing before the elements. And that was one thing that he, he emphasized a lot, was that in communion, it's not proper to bow before it as if you're worshiping the bread and wine, because he didn't believe that it was the literal body mm-hmm. and blood of Christ. And so that, that was a major um, theological difference there between the Roman Catholics and the new Protestants. <clears throat> but these ideas were very controversial in his day. At the same time, they were becoming popular. But Knox influenced the Puritans, and they influenced him as well. Both profited from one another. The Puritans had great success when England was ruled by men who were sympathetic to them. But once King Edward died in 1553, his replacement would wreak havoc in the country. Queen Mary, or Bloody Mary as she's famously known, was now the sovereign of England. And within six months, it was illegal to practice Protestant worship. This meant Knox knew he had to flee, even though he did it with tears. He wrote in a letter after making his decision to leave, My prayer is that I may be restored to battle again. Knox fled to France, and he ended up influencing another country's reformation. It was here that Knox pastored a church in Normandy that was a faithful and Protestant congregation who loved their minister. Right after Knox left this church, a member of the congregation wrote to John Calvin about Knox's service. Master John Knox, a singular instrument of the Holy Spirit, who according to the graces bountifully poured out upon him by the Lord, has faithfully promoted by his preaching the glory of Christ during the short time that he has, it has been his power to have fellowship with us. <clears throat> Typically, these early French churches are ignored by history because they didn't, very, they didn't last very long. Um, the Roman Catholic Church fought heavily for France, and they were successful in times of history. Um, while England was obvious to most people today that the Reformation succeeded, in France it didn't really do that right away until way later, because Protestantism was not the dominant force there. Um, so Knox's influence and Calvin's influence in France weren't as um, weren't as evident at that time. It wasn't until way later that people saw what they really did. Knox finally returned to his homeland in 1559. He was back in Scotland. And immediately he started preaching. Within days, he was declared an outlaw by the government. On many occasions, Mary, Queen of Scots, summoned John Knox to appear before her court for his controversial sermons. He always stood his ground and remained and reminded her of her duties as a servant of God. One of these times, a bishop told John Knox that he would be welcomed with a 12-gun salute as a direct threat to his life. Knox's response was this, My life is in the custody of him whose glory I seek. I desire the hand nor weapon of no man to defend me. I only crave audience, which, if it be denied here unto me at this time, I must seek where I may have it. Then shortly after, he preached in St. Andrews with no interruption. In the midst of this turmoil surrounding them, the Scottish Protestants were developing a new confession, an entirely new established church. After the Queen of Scots died, the power vacuum was opened to the new Presbyterian church. Six men, all with the name John, John Winram, John Spottiswood, John Willock, 
John Douglas, John Rowe, and John Knox wrote up a document that came to be known as the Scots Confession. On August 17th in 1560, the document was presented to the Scottish Parliament and was adopted as the official confession of Scotland. Thus, the Presbyterian Church was born, and the necessity of having a godly independence from the state was made apparent. After the foundations of the Scottish Reformation were laid, Knox was worn out. He had been fighting for this cause most of his life, and he was reaching the end. Things did not look promising for faithful Protestants during Knox's life. He never got to see the amazing fruits of his labors. On his deathbed, he asked his wife to read him the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, a beautiful end fitting for such a man of the word as John Knox, the end of a truly courageous man who never failed to proclaim the truth. I was just going to read that. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all sleep. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the, Im- the imperishable, and the mortal body puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of Knox's famous works... Um, one of his famous works was called The First Trumpet Blast Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Uh, very controversial work. Um, no. <laughs> even the title just sounds kind of mean. Uh, like a monstrous regiment of women. Um, he kind of sounds like a conspiracy theory. Like if he were around today, the uh, conspiracy theorist. But um, he really did make all the right people mad, though, which is kind of funny. Uh the critique was more about the Catholic Church than it really was about women. But at the same time, the critique was about women leading countries because he saw the fruit of what that led to. And he believed that that was um, not God's design for women to be doing that, to have that role. Um, and he has, in his own life, he saw these things happen because he experienced the oppression of three different women under different governments in England and in Scotland. And so he knew what it was like to experience the tyranny. And so firsthand, he kind of had that, um, that level of like, this is what it looks like when Catholic people or when oppressive governments rule and destroy the faith that they're trying to um, persecute. But, um, but it really is a biblical defense of the roles of men and women. And the funny thing is, though, that people at his time agreed with him. So a lot of times people thought like, well, this is redundant. Everyone knows this. Um, but I think it's, we look at that today and say, well, that's, that's crazy. That's like super controversial for our day. But at that time, it really wasn't. And so people thought it was redundant for him to even write this. And it was just kind of like a spit in the face. Because later, just after this, in England, they had a Protestant woman rule. And so they saw it as like biting him in the back, essentially. Mm-hmm. But I would say, like, even if you, if you argue that 
it might have been bad for the Protestant cause maybe at that time. I don't think it was necessarily like the work itself that was bad because he's responding to oppression and sin at the highest level where it's like these people were intolerant and not even allowing Protestant worship at all. Mm-hmm. They were just saying like, yep, this is illegal. You can't do this. You're going to go to jail if you practice these things. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's definitely, um, a, definitely a controversial work and, um, but it's still it's still a good one, and he he said there's a specific thing he mentioned in the book about um, there's three categories basically that that um, that women rulers lead to, and it was leniency, cruelty, and indifference. So it's basically like it either goes no one cares about the country, or everyone is super cruel, or they just um, allow all types of sin. So it's like. There's like three different ways that the the nation will go, um, but yeah, it, and part of me thinks that like in his time, this might have not looked good because of the fact that people said, "Oh yeah, we agree with you," and some a lot of people would say the reason we have a female ruler in our country is because of sin, and they would just say, it, "Oh, it's because of sin," and then they would kind of just say. It's just a necessary evil. Well, that's that's how it has to be. And I would argue that that's not really true. And that when we kind of make those statements, we just assume that things can't be different, especially since they had Christian states at this point. Like it was literally just like the state religion was what it was. Like we don't we don't understand this because we're Americans. So we, <laughs> we, we have independence. You know, we can practice religion as we freely can in some sense. Um, and so we don't we don't really understand this and and I think one of the things that we we don't realize is that how much the reformers are are foundational to the founding of the United States and the idea that godly independence would be there is something that Protestants I think understood better than anybody why we need to have tolerance with people who don't believe exactly what we believe because they were those people and they were oppressed by that government um, and think that that's kind of the spirit of like the founding fathers, most of whom were Christian and largely Protestant. Um, but yeah. And the other work he wrote was the Scots Confession. That's the other famous one. He also wrote the history of um, the Reformation of Scotland. No, it was uh, really at the end of his life. But the Scots Confession is more noteworthy, I think, and. Um, it was basically at a turning point in Scotland's history where it went from a Catholic sort of empire of just oppression to moving in that Protestant direction and moving in that direction that was different. And um, this is where the, Presbyter- the Presbyterian Church was born. And it's kind of interesting how this confession itself was a lot more simple than other ones. It had a lot less words, even though it was like the same message conveyed as like the Westminster Confession, it was very similar to that one, but it was just a little bit more like cut down, like trimming the fat, I guess, because they just didn't use a lot of words. And the Scottish were just straight to the point, so I think it was kind of funny. I do think it's kind of funny that everyone who wrote it was named John, too. (laughs) But um, John Knox's character was also something I noticed about this book, and um, I kind of wanted to answer that, too, because... The book was divided up into two sections, largely. There was the history in the first section, and then kind of the the, um, the character traits of Knox in the second. 
Um, and so I kind of structured my, my writing in that way. Um, it seemed like the Roman Catholic Church was doing well at the end of Knox's life. But we should always think of Knox not as just like this hero, because I think sometimes we can immortalize our, our reformers or the people that we look up to, but really they're just instruments in the hands of God. Like we think of ourselves and think, oh, I want to be like this man. It's like, that's true, but it's also um, we're in our own time. And so there's a different need in a different time. And he was definitely there. He was needed in his time and he served his purpose in his time. And God used him well in this um, establishment of a church and, and just great Protestant um, theology in, in Scotland and it influenced the history of Scotland you know, for generations. But um, most people think of reformers as kind of cold or like haunting figures. I think a lot of people who aren't reformed think that way or people who aren't Christian definitely think that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but... But really, people of God are, ten, are, are characterized by tenderness and mercy more than anybody. <clears throat> and that's usually ignored by people who want to malign Christianity in general. Um, but, but yeah, Knox loved his God and he had a love and a heart for mercy. He was married twice. His first wife, Marjorie, was a great joy and help to him. John Calvin once said that she was suavissima, or very sweet. And uh, he and Marjorie had two sons, Nathaniel and Eleazar. After Marjorie died, he married again the woman named Marjorie, Marjorie Stewart, who's actually a part of English royalty. Knox was described as a loving husband and father by those who knew him personally. He especially loved to, be, to do family worship and to teach his children. He once said, No, brethren, you are ordained of God to rule your own houses in this true fear, And according to his word, within your house, as I say, in some cases, you are bishops and kings. Your wife, children, servants, and family are your bishopric and charge. Knox was a tender man, especially to those close to him. But his tenderness also extended to leaders and his fellow Christians as well. Even when Knox's rebuke of the queen caused her to cry, Knox fell quiet and he couldn't bear it. He just stood sort of trembling that the queen would even respond in that way to what he said. Um, Knox even recounted how it was difficult for him to administer discipline to his sons because they were crying. He was tender indeed, but he was also humble. He openly confessed his own humanness, that he wasn't so great. He was honest about his weaknesses and made it very clear that his righteousness was Christ alone. One aspect I personally did not expect was his humor. Knox was a funny guy, C.S. Lewis described his humor as more boisterous and ferocious. This is definitely a noteworthy mark of a good pastor. It's one that we can sometimes overlook. Laughter is often medicine for the heart. Thunderous preaching and bold stands are good, but they must be accompanied by a spirit of humility and love. Zeal and godly zeal is probably the defining characteristic of great men of God as well as the mercy. But... John Knox is not the exception of this rule. Knox was bold. He confronted everyone's sin, and he did so publicly. He was not afraid to call a spade a spade. The Roman Catholic Church was the biggest target for most of his rhetoric, for good reason. The Roman Church represented the biggest threat to biblical Christianity. The largest persecutors of the, of the church. 
It should be our charge today to live our lives boldly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that means confronting the great evil in our midst. Our times are full of endless seas of wickedness. We have endless sins and, and we tolerate all kinds of evil in our society. And the church is the one who, who needs to call these ones out. I think that that's part of it, is that Knox was one who did not shy away from saying to people in public what was wrong and what was right. And I think that that's something that we, we have forgotten about in some regard, is the, the, uh, the call or the John the Baptist approach that sometimes the public proclamation of the truth is the most effective way to tell people. A lot of times it's easy to do stuff online, though, and there's a lot of Christians doing that today. So I don't want to say that that's, everyone's doing this wrong. But, um, but we're exposed to call to, to bring the light to the darkness. We want, we want repentance to happen. You know, we, we don't want people to just live in their sin and not ever think about it. And I think if, if we're constantly being a light to people, and the way John Knox could be where it's like, we can be bold and be able to tell people like, look, this is wrong. We have to be able to say those things. Um, and I, I was convicted about that myself, especially because it was like, how many times have I talked to someone that I knew was living in some sort of sin, like evidently, and I didn't say anything. And sometimes I think that's something we, we can struggle with. Um, it's, easy to, it's easy to get comfortable, especially in our world today. Um, they didn't have that comfort back then. They were getting persecuted. Uh, if they even said anything about this stuff, even in private, people would know and they'd get found out. Um, but Knox prayed for the repentance of Queen Mary. Um, I think there was a... <laughs> Billy Graham actually preached something about this. He talked about John Knox's, uh, John Knox's prayer making the Queen tremble. It's kind of like what was, what was said in the sermon, essentially. But the uh, John Knox was bold in that way, and he, he didn't... Um, but that boldness wasn't just boldness for boldness' sake. He actually wanted the repentance. He, he wanted to see things change. And he wanted, especially leaders, to be godly, because that's their, their charge in the Bible. Um, and he didn't resist for no reason. Um, I think we can look... Again, we look back and say, like, does this seem like it's rational? But it's, it's definitely the truth that he was resisting what was truly evil or what was truly tyrannical. Um, Knox actually loved his country. He was a patriot. He was born and raised in Scotland. He sought to defend it. My question is, are we? Every one of us should obey our government as long as we aren't trampling. It isn't trampling our ability to worship or to love God. But even if we must resist our own government, are we sinning? Well, if we're doing it in a biblical way, I would say no. If we seek to better our country, then we're the true patriots. Those who seek to kill and destroy are not going to simply tell you their plan. This is where Knox truly shines. He was not afraid to expose the hidden schemes of the Roman Catholic Church so that all could see the folly and sin for what it was. Resisting tyranny, especially anti-Christian tyranny, is a good thing. Knox is a perfect example. We should do what the Apostle Paul commended. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
Ephesians 5.11. Knox had an amazing impact on the church. He helped several Protestant movements. He changed the course of European history forever. But he was not alone. Knox was a man who knew his God and believed his promises to him. While I was reading this book and studying Knox, I could not help but see my own weaknesses and strengths in light of his. I have a passion for God, but it can be misdirected south so quickly. I have a fear of man that I want to rid myself of, especially when I see the, the boldness of John Knox, especially before rulers. I've learned a lot about the Reformation and a lot about the history in this book, but the greatest takeaway has been my convictions to want to lead my life boldly for Christ and not have to be tied down by my own worries. Um, He's definitely a hero of our faith. John Knox was a good man, but his God is greater. Mm-hmm.